God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. You've probably never heard Bruce Springsteen played on an organ before. But see, Bob knows that I was uh, finding myself humming that song as I was, I was looking at the passage from uh, the author of, to the Hebrew. Let me start that over. I, I got into the passage from uh, this epistle to the Hebrews, and I found myself humming that song. Uh, Everybody's got a hungry heart. So um, it starts out, I got a wife and kids in Baltimore, Jack, uh, went out for a ride, and I never went back. Like a river uh, that don't know where it's flowing, I took a wrong turn and I just kept going. Now, the tune, as Springsteen plays it, is a little peppier than the content of the lyrics. Uh, But the guy ends up, he's left his wife and kids back in Baltimore. He ends up falling in love with this girl that is no good uh, for him. And he leaves her, but then he goes right back to her. Now, why is that? It's because... Everybody's got a hungry heart, right? Uh, everybody's got a hu- uh, uh, hungry heart. So uh, I think that that song's enduring popularity has more, uh, it has more for us than just uh, muscle shirts and, and denim, which Springsteen wears well. But um, I think that song uh, resonated with our souls, uh, at least, at least on some level, and we don't want to leave our kids and, and wife in Baltimore, but uh, we understand the constant peering beyond what we've already got. All right, we understand what it is to not be satisfied, uh, to want more, uh, to want different, to look beyond, even if it turns out in the end that what we get is not as satisfying as what we had at the beginning. Because, you know, Everybody's got a hungry heart. Sometimes that can be a bad thing, like in that song. Sometimes, actually, if we're longing for uh, more of what's good, it it can be a good thing. And and you want to think about the uh, rich young man in the gospel passage that Trent just read. Uh, He's got it all together. He is a community leader. He is well-to-do. He is moral in every respect. Uh, He has got a very impressive resume, as do many of you. And yet he is wondering if there's more, right? Is there more to life than being good? Is there more satisfaction than the affirmation of others? Uh, Is there more security than wealth? And so he runs up to Jesus and he asks this question that is, Uh, at least in some way, on all of our hearts, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Uh, What must I do to be saved? And in fact, I would say that that's actually the same question that the guy in Springsteen's song is asking. What must I do to be saved? Perhaps he's not saying, what must I do to be saved from the judgment of God? But he's saying, what must I do to be saved from this situation that I'm in? What must I do to be saved from the loneliness that I'm feeling? And at bottom, that question is always, what must I do to find the delight of my heart and the deepest satisfaction possible? Because everybody has got a hungry heart. 
So the rich young man has always tried to answer that question religiously. The guy in the song is looking for love in all the wrong places. Uh, But different means to be sure, but both trying to find the answer to that hunger and coming up short. Left longing for more. So in our epistle passage, the author of the Hebrews gives us the answer that will satisfy our hungry hearts. And so we got four points. In this passage, we see that we are exhorted by the rest of God, exposed by the Word of God, exonerated by the priest of God, and embraced by the grace of God. So exhorted by the rest of God, exposed by the Word of God, exonerated by the priest of God, embraced by the grace of God. So let's walk through this passage and see if we Find the answer that our hungry hearts are longing for. We're exhorted by the rest of God. Now, I don't mean the leftover parts of God. Um, uh, The author is talking about the Sabbath rest of God. He's actually not talking about it in the sense that we would normally think as if you don't work on weekends. He's not saying we work for six days, but on the seventh day uh, we should stay home. Um, He is it, I think if you go back and look at the first part of chapter 4, you'll see that he is spiritualizing the Sabbath. And this is what I mean by that. He is equating, uh, in this sense of Sabbath rest, he's equating it to belief, to belief in Christ, to trusting without qualification Christ's finished work for salvation. The Sabbath rest, in this sense, is that we would rest from self-righteousness. And rest from self-justification. Rest from waving our resumes around. Rest from the stubborn but exhausting belief that we need to prove ourselves worthy of our salvation. Whether it's divine salvation or social salvation. And whether it's by our works or by our title or by our achievements or by our moral goodness or by who affirms us. Whatever it is, it's never enough. It all leaves us asking, what else must I do to be saved? Because everybody has got a hungry heart. And the only thing that can satisfy it is Christ Himself. So therefore, the author says, make every effort to enter the rest of the Gospel. Some translations say strive to enter that rest. It sounds like a little like work. To enter that rest, doesn't it? But you probably know from your own professional lives that uh, putting down your work can be harder work than working. That it's sometimes it's much easier just to do the work than it is to lay down, uh, lay it down and rest. And it's the same way spiritually. Make every effort, uh, the author says, be disciplined. Seek out every area where you are not relying on Christ and through prayer and glad repentance, enter the rest of the gospel. We are exhorted to the rest of God. Now, if you have a hard time figuring out where you are not trusting Christ, then we have number two, and that is that we are exposed by the word of God. And the word of God does lots of things for us. It it instructs us. In the character of God, it, it tells us how to please God. It encourages us when we feel distant from God. It reminds us 
of God's faithfulness. As someone has said, the Bible reads us. And so, in all those senses, the Word of God is living and active. But in the way that the author of Hebrews is using it here, the Word of God exposes those places where we are not trusting Christ. It gets inside of us. There's a piercing nature about the Word of God like a two-edged sword. It cuts into the nooks and crannies and hidden crevices of our heart, dividing, he says, even soul and spirit. I mean, before you left your house this morning, uh, you probably looked in the mirror, most of you anyway, right? To see what was out of place. And so you did that so you could fix what was wrong, to make yourself presentable. And the Word of God uh, works like that. It's like a mirror for the soul. We look into it to see what's out of place. That's not the only reason we look into it. That's one of the things it does for us. And the problem, though, is that we cannot fix much of what we see out of place in any lasting or sufficient way. I mean, for instance, loving my enemies. It's not just a matter of being told to love my enemies, is it? Not looking at someone lustfully or making God the greatest treasure of my heart. These aren't just light switches that we can turn on and off. So the Word of God gets into those dark places and illuminates the places in our lives. For instance, the way we speak to people that we might disagree with. Or the way we bring problems home from work but take them out on the people we love the most. Uh, The motivations of our heart that lead us uh, to angle service to others in a way that benefits us. Uh, The secret pet sins that we sneak on the side. Almighty God, we just prayed, Almighty God to you, all hearts are open, all desires known, and from you no secrets are hid. The Word of God knows where we are not resting in the Gospel, even if you and I don't know where we're not resting. Again, think of the rich young man in the Gospel passage. Jesus lists out for him several of the commandments, and the young man says, I think naively, All these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus uh, looks at him and loves him. And for this particular young man, on that list that Jesus gave, he is not included among the Ten Commandments, do not covet. It's the one he left out. And so then Jesus, the incarnate word, cuts right to the heart of this man and says, one thing you lack And he went away sad because Jesus' word showed him, exposed to him that he didn't own his stuff. His stuff owned him. The word knew him and cut right to the heart. Now, on one side of the coin, there's condemnation, right? But on the other side of the coin, what a grace to be shown where he lacked. But either way, the author of Hebrews says, all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. And that exposure by the Word of God leaves us, in a sense, withered and calling out for a Savior, calling out for someone to step in on our behalf. And that leads us to point number three. We are exonerated by the High Priest of God. Now, 
I, I could have just said we are saved by the high priest of God, but saved doesn't start with an E, so it wouldn't have worked. So um, we are exonerated. We are saved. We are set free. We are absolved by Jesus, the great high priest. Where the word of God could have left us condemned and judged, God himself steps in as our intermediary. The scripture says he has passed through the heavens. That he has come to be our great high priest. Now what does the high priest do? These Hebrews that were receiving the letter would have known that the high priest offers a sacrifice to God to pay for the sins of the people. And yet what is remarkable about this high priest, he's not casting resentful judgment against us for whom he's making sacrifice. It says we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. What a treasure that line is. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. He understands temptation in every respect. His loyalty to the Father was tested. His faith in the Father was tested. His moral purity and righteousness according to the law were tested. He was tested in every respect. Yet without sin. He is our high priest. He is the intermediary that we need who stands between us and God to make that sacrifice on our behalf. But here's the completely unique claim of Christianity. That the high priest himself is the sacrifice. That Jesus offers himself on the cross as the unblemished Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And what this means is that if you find yourself burdened with guilt this morning, if you find yourself laden with shame, if you find yourself despairing over cancer, or over Hurricane Michael, or over family estrangement, or over a conflict at work, or over a sin committed against you, or over an addiction, whatever it is, Jesus came for that. You can put it on the cross. It has been died for. You are forgiven. And in His strength, you can forgive. You can have hope that God is in control and He will see whatever this trial is for you through. According to His good plan and His good purposes, God is for you. God is for you, and we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Which leads us to our last point. We are embraced by the grace of God. The author concludes, let us therefore approach the throne of grace with boldness, with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's the rest that we're longing for. The gospel rest that satisfies our hungry hearts. It is the person of Jesus Christ, our piercing and atoning great high priest, who is himself the Sabbath rest that we need. He is the end of our proving ourselves by our resumes. 
He is the end of our self-righteousness. He is the end of self-justification. He is the comfort to our despair. He is the answer to our confusion. And He is the bread of life to fill our hungry hearts. The answer to the question, what must I do to be saved, is you don't have to do anything except believe. That Jesus has done all that's required. It is an audacious claim that you and I could approach the throne of Almighty God with boldness, and yet in Jesus Christ, and because of His cross, the throne of a holy God becomes the throne of grace. It's a refuge for the weary. It's a fountain of mercy and a help in our time of need. The rest from our labors to which we are initially exhorted becomes a warm, safe embrace of divine grace. And Jesus Himself is the delight of our hearts and the deepest satisfaction there is. So whether you have been more like the rich young man with an overconfidence in your own accomplishment and moral goodness, or whether you're more like the man in Springsteen's song, looking for love in all the wrong places. Everybody's got a hungry heart. Turn to Jesus. Turn to Jesus. Turn to Jesus, our Sabbath rest and great high priest. Let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Amen.